I'm Beth Bruno, and you're listening to the Fierce and Lovely Podcast. This is a podcast for women who wonder how strength and weakness coexist, or how to bless both bravery and tenderness. For those longing to bring the fullness of their glory to the world without a chip on their shoulder. For those who have embraced a global sisterhood and left small storied lives behind, this is for you. The fierce and lovely women seeking the both and of a big storied life. Join me as I chat with fierce and lovely women around the world. On today's episode, it's going to sound like we've headed to the South, but we're not. We're talking with my new friend, Anna Smith, who recently relocated to Colorado. Anna is the co-founder of Restore One, an anti-human trafficking organization based out of North Carolina that is the first and only uh, to open up a home for male sex trafficking survivors. At Restore One, Anna collaborates with leading trauma experts to develop innovative safe home care for boys. She enjoys using her knowledge and personal experience to strengthen and stand in freedom with others through speaking, writing, and advocacy. Anna and I first met through the online magazine Reframing uh, Femininity called Red Tent Living, where she is a regular monthly contributor. And now we get to live in the same town. And she has just recently opened up the trauma-informed yoga studio Hopebound Collective. She is married and the mother to a little girl, Asha. And I just cannot wait for you to hear uh, all about her work with Restore One. Before we go to our conversation, I want to introduce you to another woman named Lillian Wald, uh, who is also a pioneer pushing into areas um, of social reform that no one else had really been doing in her time. Uh, Lillian Wald pioneered the proximity or the community development movement in 1893. She was born to a wealthy Jewish family and was sent to nursing school in Manhattan, where she witnessed firsthand poverty among the immigrants living in the Lower East Side. So she moved in. And she started the Henry Street Settlement to provide free health care or health care on a sliding fee scale to the immigrants in that community. Later, they expanded to various social services, uh, English classes, various arts. And by 1913, the Henry Street Settlement had seven buildings, two other satellite centers, over 3,000 individuals enrolled in their various classes, 92 nurses providing 200,000 visits a year. And get this, they are still open today. Lillian Wald is an incredible example of a lost woman who pioneered a social reform movement and this idea of moving in and living among the people that you're committed to serving. Just like Anna has pioneered a movement to address male sex trafficking and to open a home for boys who have survived um, that hideous crime. Can't wait for you to hear from her. Here's our conversation. Hey, Anna, welcome to the Fierce and Lovely podcast. Hey, Beth. Thanks for having me. 
Yes. So Anna, I've I've already introduced you a little bit. Um, tell us a few things about yourself that wouldn't be on a bio. Wouldn't you know? Not the official stuff. Tell us a little bit about what occupies your real day to day. Well, my daughter's in my bio, um, but um, my 16-month-old very much occupies my day when I'm not working. Um, yeah, and um, I'm trying to think. I When I have time, I really love to break out some paint and put it on a canvas. I don't call myself um, an artist by any means in that particular way, but... Um, for me, it's really fun and therapeutic. So, oh, what yeah. kind of painting? Uh, it's acrylics and then mixed media. So I'll mosh posh some things on there um, and add glitter and yeah, just um, let it flow. And uh, for me, it's kind of a it's a little bit of a release. That's awesome. Yeah, I know that. <laughs> yeah. I don't. I don't advertise my artwork, <laughs> but I do do it from time to time. <laughs> it's for yourself. Yes, absolutely for myself. Yeah, Anna, you are also really into yoga. You're a trauma informed yoga instructor. Right? I am. Yeah, I've been teaching for about four and a half years. I took a little bit of a break after my daughter Asha was born, and. Um, I am now journeying on opening a trauma-informed yoga studio in Fort Collins, and I really believe the practice of yoga can aid in treatment for trauma, complex trauma, and then, again, just so helpful for um, anyone in general to engage the body mindfully uh, with uh, posture and breath and meditation. So, Anna, I'm not a big – okay, I'm not a yoga person at all. I've done it a few times and it still feels super awkward to me. But tell me, I know enough basics, right? Tell me the difference between kind of a quote unquote regular yoga class and trauma-informed yoga. Yeah. Well, yoga can be really weird. And I'm allowed to say that because I am a yoga instructor. Um, (laughs) In some some places it can be. Um, And a little bit, um, it can catch... Uh, students who maybe are new to yoga or haven't experienced certain types off guard when there are things like Sanskrit used or maybe certain practices um, incorporated into the posture and breath that can already, like you named so well, Beth, be uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for us to engage the body. Um, And so in a traditional yoga class, you may have an instructor who gets up and walks around uses Sanskrit, may lay hands on you in certain postures, it's called an assist. Um, And trauma-informed, there's just a little bit, there's big differences. Uh, One is we do not touch, we don't touch um, our students. um, And you generally stay in one place throughout the class and you actually practice with the students. You use your language differently. So there's invitation and autonomy over what you want to do with your body. So there's an option Mm -hmm. of choice. Uh, which is so mm-hmm. important for mm-hmm. um, those of us who have experienced trauma. Uh, mm. Yeah. And uh, the big thing is really helping uh, your students, your clients engage the body in a way that's helpful for them, um, befriending the body. And so kind of counteracting what we would call as dissociation. Um, it is very common for someone to enter in a vinyasa class uh, 
more so like vinyasa power. So that's like breath and flow is vinyasa. That's what that means. Um, okay. Hot yoga is really popular nowadays. So to it's very common for someone to enter in those classes and, and totally dissociate to not be in their body. And so trauma-informed is uh, inquiry. Can you notice your feet on the floor? What is it mm. like when you step back into a high lunge? Do you feel your quadricep engaged? So it's really bringing people out of the head and, in, and into the body and in a safe mm. context. Um, so my yoga studio, we will have, um, I will try my best to create a space where it um, can be a blank canvas for people to mm. enter in. Um, so that means for me, there won't be, um, in yoga studios, you may often see deities or, um, certain things that may draw people into some of the origin of yoga, but, um, yeah, I'm going to try to try my best to keep it as open and non-distracting as possible. Hmm. I like that. Gosh, if I were to try yoga, that sounds maybe more like my style, <laughs> especially the not touching me thing. Right? Yeah. That's yeah. kind of freaky when you're like, oh, I was not expecting that. Well, I'd love for you to come, Beth. Open invitation. <laughs> <laughs> I will try it. I will try anything. Um, <laughs> last year or two years ago, a woman invited me to um, experience a singing bowls session mm-hmm, with her, mm-hmm. Yeah, which honestly sounded like the freakiest thing ever. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really liked her and decided I'll, I can say yes to, to almost anything. Right. And went and like weird, so weird. And yet like <laughs> incredibly relaxing. Cool. I left feeling like someone had just massaged my head, my scalp, you know, for an hour and she had never touched my head. Wow. So that's awesome. I will try it. I will try Yay. anything. <laughs> so fun. Yes. Um, so Anna, tell me a little bit about I mean, that came out of your work already. And that's where I really want to go right now with with our conversation is inviting you to share with my listeners um, all the work that you and your husband have spent the last, is it decade? It feels um, like a decade. Yeah, doing yeah. and um, listeners, this is yeah, this it's just fun, Anna, to have you here. We've talked about human trafficking um, several different times from different perspectives, women engaging in it in different ways around the world. And so you bring an additional angle um, to this movement. And so I just I'm excited for you to share with us. So let's let's talk about what you have been doing these last few years around trauma and human yeah. trafficking. Happy to. Uh, yeah. So to start out the story, uh, my husband and I, Chris, we were very bright eyed and bushy tailed, very passionate, young 20 somethings. And um, after a stint of youth ministry, we learned about the issue of human trafficking. And at that time, uh, felt compelled to do something, didn't feel necessarily equipped to start our own at that point. We were maybe 21, each 21, 20. And so we worked for a nonprofit for about six months. And it was in that six months where we really saw the need for safe homes for children who had been sexually trafficked in the United States needing placement. And uh, my husband, I just remember the dinner conversation so well. 
uh, it was uh, a weeknight. We were sitting at the table and my husband, Chris, looks at me and he says, Anna, I think we should start our own nonprofit. And I said, that's a horrible idea, Chris. Why, why would we want to do that? Um, more or less, the journey of starting a nonprofit is um, signing up to fundraise to do uh, tons of different things that we weren't well versed in at all. We're step, we were steps away from the marriage altar and um, just fresh out of college undergrad. So really had no Mm -hmm. clue about life or ourselves. Um, And so I felt like I shut it down that um, evening, which is probably terrible, but um, I just didn't, didn't want to do it. Didn't want to engage it. I was happy doing the work I was doing at the time. Um, I was a case manager working with survivors uh, coming out of trafficking situations, both labor and sex, and um, doing emergency placement. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so, but he continued to bring it back up. And one thing led to another. And uh, within the span of about a month, maybe less, we quit our current job. And moved back to our hometown of Greenville, North Carolina, the last place we ever thought we would end up (laughs) (laughs) with the name Restore One and with a vision to open a safe home for children who've been trafficked. Okay. So so pause. You guys are 21 years old. Is that? Yeah. 21, 22, really young. Just married. And it took took Chris just a month of kind of working on you for you to catch, <laughs> catch this vision. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Okay. Easily convinced, I guess. Um, well, we had a couple of really interesting confirmations. Um, someone that was praying for us and had been praying for the work that we were already doing before we started Restore One, like walked up one day to Chris's mom and said, hey, when are Chris and Anna moving back to Greenville to start a new ministry? Like stuff like that started to come up in between that month. And um, we just began to pray. I just began to pray. And uh, as much as I was terrified, like Beth, like I know you're in this work as well with addressing human trafficking. And um, I'm sure you've, and I'm not trying to knock this, but I've had people come up to me excited to address human trafficking. And I was terrified. I mean, mm-hmm. I was terrified to start something new and to and to further engage the work beyond what I was doing because it's it's um, not easy. I think mm-hmm. I think most of the time, um, or some of the movements I've seen in the recent years have kind of um, glamorized addressing human trafficking is yeah, trendy, yeah. but like the real work is not at all that. And um, right. Yes, well, you so. were already engaged in relationships with survivors for yeah. you to know and understand that. I think a lot of people who enter in excited, it's still just stories, right? Mm-hmm. Movies yeah. and books and the idea of it all. But you had real faces and and struggles that mm-hmm. you know informed your fear, which was yeah. probably really such a gift actually to you to not go in as as naive and glassy eyed. Yeah. 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 And so we moved back and we were, um, we, I remember vividly within those first few months with the name restore one sitting at our kitchen table, just drafting out this mission and vision and founding board. And when we moved back, we weren't sure if we were going to work with boys or girls we really didn't know much about male sex trafficking at the time. There wasn't really anything 
out there and there were very few, there still are not as many uh, awareness events or campaigns centered around men and boys, but really at that time there was nothing. Um, and I was on during that couple months span of getting the org off the ground and planning that first board meeting. Mm-hmm. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who ran a safe home in the mount, mountain part of North Carolina. So the Asheville area and mm-hmm. I was explaining to her what we were doing, and uh, she's always been so supportive, such a great uh, cheerleader and champion of others um, engaging the work. And I and I remember the conversation, and uh, she said, Anna, uh, have you thought about working with boys? And I have a home for girls, and I get calls for boys, and I don't have any placement to put them. There are no safe homes mm-hmm. for boys. And again, I remember initially saying no, like, Emily, her name, my good friend's name is Emily. I said, Emily, um, I, I'm not sure that feels like uncharted territory. We already don't know what we're doing. Um, and, and she said, okay, well, you should really think about it. So hung up the phone and, Mm -hmm. um, I just couldn't get it off my mind, Beth. I, I couldn't, um, shake it. I couldn't shake the thought that there were no homes, brought it up to Chris and we sat on it for about four months Mm -hmm. after that conversation, sat on the idea, thought about the idea. And the tipping point for us was um, a couple months later, there was a symposium in Fayetteville, North Carolina, and there was a panel of um, female survivors, women running their own programs who had um, exited the life. Mm -hmm. And one of the women spoke up and started talking about boys that come to her drop-in center. And again, that there were no safe homes for them. And mm. it was that moment, Chris and I locked eyes and we said, yeah, we're going to do this. And um, the rest is history as far as um, we just began pioneering the work of opening what is called the Anchor House. Mm-hmm. The, it was the It's the first long-term care safe home for boys ages 12 to 18 who have exited the life of sex trafficking. Hmm. Uh, and the journey with that, as you know, and as we've discussed, was not an easy one. Um, I'll, I'd love to tell the story, if it's okay, about um, kind of the donation that allowed yes. us to build. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So again, to frame the picture, really young still, maybe we turn, maybe this is a year later and we've gained a year of um, <laughs> wisdom. Yeah, right. Uh, and uh, we once we got the vision of the anchor house and said, we're going to open this home for boys, we really felt like the Lord was calling us to build this home debt free, which is hilarious to think back and think about that. Um, just the naive, young faith of just saying yes. Um, mm-hmm. And we told our board and our board was, you know, each probably about 20 years older than us or 15 years older than us and had walked more life. And they just thought, they just said, I mean, I just remember the look in their eyes is thinking, wow, that is such a daring and bold vision. And wow, I'm not sure if that's going to work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't right. think that's going to happen, guys. Uh, but regardless, we progressed and uh, started a campaign to build the Anchor House debt-free. It was about um at the time, we estimated an eight hundred thousand dollar project with buying the land and building the buildings the way we wanted, which allowed it. Which the plans were and still are 
a separate cottage, which houses four boys, and then a larger main building where they go to school and have a bigger living area. We have offices for the house staff and counseling room and kitchen, all of that, all of that in there. Okay. Yeah. And um, we had campaigned for a couple months and um, had not raised a ton of money, maybe like $5,000, which is not which is a great, you know, great that we raised that much, but not nearly what we needed to build it. Sure, <laughs> um, of course. Right. Uh, and on April Fool's, um, I was in the office <laughs> preparing for staff to come in, which staff at that point was Chris and I and like two volunteers and an intern. Um, that was our staff. Mm-hmm. And Chris at the time uh, drove a motorcycle and we had one car. And I, and he called me and was hyperventilating and I thought, oh crap, he has wrecked, he has wrecked his motorcycle. Okay. How bad is it? Um, and from what I made out in the conversation, I could barely understand him. We had received a check in the mail for $600,000 from someone we didn't even know on April fool's day. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, surely yeah. At first, you're just not believing it. I mean, it all sounds like a hoax, probably, at first. Oh, yeah. We sat there and counted the zeros that mm-hmm. morning. <laughs> and um, we didn't. We had never heard from this, this donor and had never engaged them. Mm-hmm. And when we reached out to call the donor, the donor exclaimed that she had Google searched and found us and that Jesus told her to give. Mm-hmm. And and proceeded to ask some questions that if I was to give that amount of money, I probably would know the answer to before then, um, but was still so happy for the work we were doing and very atypical to a donor of that magnitude did not want to come visit, did not want us to come visit that her. And um, that was that. That's crazy. Absolutely crazy. It is bizarre. What's even more bizarre is that same donor uh, turned around and gave another $200,000 two months later. Oh my gosh. And so you built. We built. We had the money to build mm. uh, out of out of nowhere. And still mm. to this day, I wonder, I wonder if she's an angel. Mm. Wow. Have you ever met her face to face? No. She, she doesn't want to meet face to face. Um, Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just amazing. I love that. I love that. I love that God really honored the youthfulness and just the bold faith that you and your husband had. Um, You know, that, and that, yeah, I think that's so true when we're in our 20s. Some of us just, if we have the least amount of passion and really go for it, I think God answers some pretty big prayers when we're young and full of faith and passion and don't have all of the cynic voice, you know, Mm -hmm. in our head yet. Mm -hmm. So I love that. So you guys started building. I know it was a long journey in in and of itself, lots of hurdles and barriers, but you, it just opened. Am I right? Anchor House just opened in the fall. 
Yes, we are open. We are fully staffed. We have, I love our program, Beth. It's so unique. We have a a beautiful set of house parents that live in with the boys. And one of the house parents is a licensed professional counselor, uh, has been doing work with substance abuse for many years. And um, our director, Linda Rooster, uh, is also a licensed counselor herself. And uh, we just have a great team. We have a wonderful educator, um, Tanea, who does all the schooling on campus. And it's really a holistic approach to healing. It, it is really a sanctuary for boys. Uh, we are doing something that I believe is really one of a kind and offers a chance for true change. Uh, many programs are about numbers, and it's, again, very important for us to have boys within the home. But uh, for us, we are not a six-month turnaround facility. Um, we are not even an annual turnaround facility. We are a, a home where they can come and stay for the length of time they need. And uh, that will be different for every boy mm-hmm. and uh, his situation following um, graduating our program will look different. Some will likely go to college. Uh, others may go back with a trusted family member. Some may be adopted. But uh, what we are really firm on is we are not a uh, have to reach a certain amount of uh, numbers every mm-hmm. year of boys entering and graduating the program. And so it's open. And our plan is to build two more cottages within the next few years on that campus to eventually house 12 long-term mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So are the is it full now? Do you have the four? Boys we are there. not full. No, we are still accepting applications. So I hope this podcast continues to get the word out there. Mm-hmm. Um, what what we know about boys is that they are um, really under-identified. Uh, it is, uh, yeah. So for we already can think about, as you know, for girls and women, uh, they are, again, there's identification problem as well. And we've had to work really hard. And so that survivors get a chance to go into some sort of program or recovery um, and not be put in a situation like jail. Uh, Right. So Mm -hmm. for boys, we are still so behind with that. And Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So, and wouldn't you say with boys that there's even a, maybe a thicker layer of self-shame that prevents even it creates an even bigger barrier to seeking help or self-identifying. Absolutely. Uh, the boys that we have worked with um, and the men that we have worked with um, have spoke to that level of shame and the cultural stigma that prevents them from feeling like they can even disclose mm-hmm. what has happened to them yeah. uh, for fear of the judgment, for the words, for the thoughts that will come against them. And, uh, that they will even, some of the fear is what we see as a man to be in our society um, will continue to defame who mm-hmm. they really are as a person. And so, mm. yes, yes, yes. Um, I tell, when I do trainings, I tell frontline workers that um, if you don't believe that this boy or man could be a survivor, uh, then then they feel that and they will not disclose. Mm. I think it's probably the next big um, direction that we need to go in the human trafficking movement is reducing that stigma just by talking about it more and more and more, right? Just the more it's normalized. I, I, I talk about this with trainings in terms of reducing the stigma around what a victim looks like 
let's stop talking about handcuffs and chains and bruises because mm-hmm. it communicates to victims that if that's if that's not my story, I must not be a victim. Um, but this is the same thing, reducing the stereotype that it's only impacting girls. And we only talk about girls. We only show pictures of girls in our trainings. We only have statistics around the girls. Um, because I think you're right. The more we talk about something, the more normalized and easily identified it becomes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Which is um, why we're excited. We have a upcoming film that we will be touring in the spring called Boys over the course of uh, building the anchor house and uh, bringing Restore One into fruition. We filmed a documentary about male sex trafficking in the United States. And the primary um, content of the film is stories of men who were trafficked as boys and sharing their experience, sharing uh, what it was like to be exploited, what it was like to be trafficked, and then their lives now, who they are wow. um, as productive members of society, what recovery feels like, how it's uh, a process. Mm-hmm. It doesn't happen overnight. And it's it's a beautiful film. They are stunning. The, the men in the film are stunning. And uh, it really, our hope for the film is, again, to put a face that um, demantles the stigma hmm. to bring light to the reality of what men and boys face and the hope of healing that can hmm. come. Hmm. So if people would like to perhaps bring that screening to their town, is is there a way to kind of access that information? Absolutely. Yeah, we have... Several uh, trailers on our website, restoreonelife.org, and you can, um, there's a drop down tab when it talks about our work, and you can see the, the tab for boys. And you can email our info, email info at restoreonelife.org, and that'll put you in touch with our um, director of de- engagement and myself. And yes, we are, we want to bring this film to as many places as possible and make it accessible, especially to those who are already doing the work, maybe working with girls, maybe starting to work with boys to help break down the stigma and to help bring light to mm-hmm. how boys can be addressed. And um, yeah, that is our hope. We want to raise the bar on the identification of boys and men. Hmm. Okay, great. Well, I'll definitely share those links in the show notes, Anna. How? Here's what I'm wondering as you're talking um, in terms of just embracing your fierce and lovely in the midst of this work. And I imagine at times wrestling with so much anger at darkness, anger at evil, and at injustice, and yet continuing to move forward for this for the sake of this home and the vision you have, and ultimately these boys who will benefit. How have you balanced that hmm. personally? Hmm. Yeah, I uh, I took a sabbatical, as you know, this past summer and uh, into into mid fall. And I went into sabbatical wrestling with the darkness we faced along the journey for Store One and the personal casualties that it cost myself, cost my husband. Um, I, I really felt like in a way I had lost some of that naive faith, some mm-hmm. of that um, zealous passion. 
And um, I just wasn't sure, Beth, at the time, if I could continue on with this mm. work as much as I care and love even some of the men in my life who have become my good friends and have been a part of my own healing journey, I wasn't sure if I could continue to engage. Hmm. And it was about three quarters through my sabbatical. um, I was on a run and I was listening to a podcast by Erwin McManus, who's a pastor in LA. And he was talking about what, and this sounds slightly martyrsome, but I'm going to bring it around. He he framed it. What, what is, what is worth dying for? What is your yes? And, um, I just remember pausing in this run and having a visceral reaction coming into tears and almost holding the faces of some of the men and boys that we have worked with some of the stories, some of the successes, some of the non-successes, which we, we sometimes have engaging this work. And, um, in my mm. gut, knowing that this is my yes, mm. um, and I'm called to still to engage this work, that uh, it is not time to put it down yet, but there is a different way moving into this year where I am choosing to uh, do small things, like at the end of my day, taking a 10-minute walk and celebrating the successes of the day and looking at the things that didn't pan out the way I wanted them to or hope for them to Hmm. and laying them at the feet of Jesus and, and asking for grace, asking for almost a separation at the end of the day to be able to just pick it back up tomorrow. Hmm. And I continue to hold in mind, there have been, um, as you know, working in anti-trafficking, it is, Sometimes, sometimes you work with a survivor for two, two to three years before there is a, a significant um, goodness that transpires in their life where they can sit with you and celebrate about the freedom or about maybe the new job or going to college. And there have been a couple of really dear, and I, I want to call them my brothers. Um, that's how I see the men and boys we work with, not as mm-hmm. clients, not as, yeah. um, the, I see them as my brothers. And there have been a couple of really beautiful, beautiful ways that um, their lives have been significantly changed and restored by their own work. And I've been able to just journey alongside them. Mm-hmm. And I hold those with me. Mm-hmm. I hold those with me on the hard days. Um, and I hold those with me on the good days. And I remember that uh, if that is the only change that I'll ever see, it's worth it for me. Mm-hmm. That That is lovely, Anna, to, to the core of my definition, that idea of joining God to bring forth life and beauty. And you're getting to see it in the lives of these precious um, brothers of yours. And I love how that, in a way, has been the antidote to the darkness um, remembering, reminding yourself of that transformation that you've been privileged to witness. I love hearing more about just the Anchor House and your vision, passion. I love that you're still involved in it and will point people um, to all the places where they can find out more ways to get involved in Restore One, ways to perhaps see or host the filming of boys. Um, 
screening of boys. So Anna, thank you so much for being on the show today and sharing all of this with us. Absolutely. Thank you, Beth, for having me. It was a privilege. Well, Anna is going on tour with Boys Documentary this spring and probably coming to a city near you. If you would like to check out where they'll be or consider screening it yourself in your own hometown, go to restoreonelife.org to find out all of the details and to watch the, the trailer of the documentary, which has already given me chills. I loved learning more about the reality of male sex trafficking And if you think that someone in your life needs to become more aware of that side of things, I would highly encourage you to share this podcast with them. I love doing this podcast, as I tell you over and over again, and have started a Facebook group where we can continue the conversation. Would love to have you head over to the Fierce and Lovely podcast group and just share your thoughts and engage around some of these episodes. I would also love to provide you some free resources as well as a new Fierce and Lovely travel guide that I am writing a different city each month, a curated guide to how to spend one day finding the ways in which women have helped shaped its history, such as the Lower East Side in Manhattan and women like Lillian Wald. If you would like to receive one of those for free each month, you need to subscribe, which you can do by heading over to my website, bethbruno.org and subscribing. You'll receive a password for exclusive access to my resource library and the Fierce and Lovely Travel Guide in your inbox on the first Friday of every month this year. Thanks again for listening. This is Beth Bruno, and you've been listening to the Fierce and Lovely Podcast. Podcast.